0: Reincarnation, Past Lives Revisited, where we will cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation, so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Alexios Artos for his amazing sound engineering and editing work, and Raphael Crooks for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. Today we cover two difficult subjects the subject of reincarnation and the topic of adoption. Both of these complex issues come with many layers and when a person is left with a feeling of loss for something or someone that they didn't even know, it can be a very difficult journey indeed. Join me today as we welcome Annie to the podcast to discuss her realisation of a secret that she's carried across two lifetimes and her struggle with working out what to do about it. I'd like to welcome Annie to the program today. Annie has memories of having to make an extremely difficult decision in her last life that has cost her greatly in this one as well. Annie, welcome to the program. It's so lovely to have you here. Thanks for having me. You're most welcome. We have talked before, but um we're re-recording this because it was a bit of a disaster the first time because of me. So when you first spoke to me, you mentioned that you've had your memories, probably your memories may be the first thing that you remember out of your life rather than your own memories. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I would say that some of the earliest memories that I've had from this life are memories of a, of a previous life,
0: definitely. And you also experienced some sort of disturbing and upsetting dreams. Is that right? Am I not that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... Really, the, the memories started. I mean, I they were just spontaneous memories. It was just like a part of me when I was a child. And I probably from the first time I was able to talk, I started talking to my mom about these past life memories. And there aren't too many that I actually remember from back then. But um it was stuff like, you know, I I lived in a different house and this house had a chimney on the right-hand side and it had Ivy growing up it. And, um, you know, there was a memory that I had of going refrigerator shopping. And my, my mom just kind of looked at me like, "What, what are you talking about? We, we got our refrigerator like 10 years before you were born. We've never gone refrigerator shopping. Yeah. Those, those memories were just with me always. Um, but I was kind of discouraged from talking about them at that age. Um, and got to a point when I was about seven, when I just, I learned to stop talking about it. Like this was not acceptable behavior. And I stopped talking about it and the, the memories started showing up in dreams, recurring dreams. Um, always of the same place. Um, Never any other people in them, just me, um, but it wasn't me. I mean, it was very clear that I wasn't me in the dreams i've I've always known that, yeah, and then it just it got to a point in in my adult life where a couple of years ago, I had this conversation with my husband about dreams um and I shared with him that i I'm never myself in my dreams, and he just thought that was really strange um. So I kind of went on to, to share with him, you know, well, I'm, I, I can't see myself. It's like a first person perspective. I can't see myself, but I just know that I'm not me. Um, I'm in a different city, I'm I, but I know the neighborhood, like I've walked these streets, I know these houses, I know this park. like, you know, I knew that city in some ways better than I know the city I'm in right now, um, So, you know, we kind of just toyed around with the idea of, well, maybe this, maybe these are past life memories. Maybe this is reincarnation. And then it kind of dawned on me that, oh, yeah, I had these memories when I was a kid and I wasn't allowed to talk about them. Um, So that just kind of put me on this path to sort of investigate this. Um, I started meditating in 2020. Seemed like a good idea. Like we all had a lot of time on our hands and um, seemed like something that would be nice and relaxing. And maybe I, you know, I'd be able to dig into some additional past life memories. And, um, yeah, it took about a year of meditation before anything really came about. But, um, once it did, it was like, uh, you know, I opened a door and. I gotta tell you, it's been really, it's a tough road. At first, it was kind of enlightening and kind of exciting. And the more I started digging into the past and the more difficult the memories became, I even fell into a bit of a depression. Like it, it, it really, I really started to struggle. Almost didn't even want to share the story. Um, you know, for fear of being called crazy or, Uh, You know, plus the story itself is just painful. I don't want to hurt anyone from the previous life that's involved. So, yeah.
0: With your mum, we talked earlier and you said your mum's not a bad woman. She's not someone who doesn't listen. I think you just felt she was a bit freaked out. And I'd like to make that point just in case there's any mums listening. We've spoken before about the importance of listening to your kids when they do say this and trying not to shut them down. And I think it's a valuable point because Do you feel the dream started happening because you weren't allowed to talk about it?
1: Yes, absolutely. It was like when you buy your computer and it comes preloaded with all of this this junk on there, mostly junk that you don't want, (laughs) but you buy your computer and it comes preloaded with all of this stuff. That's what it felt like to me having these previous life memories. It was like they were just preloaded. They had always been there. And when I wasn't allowed to talk about them or share them, or really even process the grief, which probably would have been difficult for me at that age anyway, but um not being able to to talk about it, I think made them sort of seep into the the dream, the dream world.
0: It makes a lot of sense because um, in the dream world, we're closer to our subconscious in a lot of ways. The reason why we dream, I suspect, is is to try and sort things out that we can't understand in our logical mind. So that makes a lot of sense to me. But you said too that you um, started to meditate and you mentioned to me that when you started to meditate, you literally almost dropped a bomb on yourself because you suddenly found out all about this whole thing.
1: Yeah, um, I started by listening to, you know, on YouTube, there's all kinds of meditation channels. And I found that whenever I did a guided meditation, it never really worked. Like I was never really able to slip into any kind of like hypnotic state. Um, there's something about like the speaking, the words. Um, I'm always sitting there like, worried that i'm not doing it right and i'm oh i forgot what they said and you know, <laughs> not I'm not doing it right so um the guided meditation didn't work so i really just started listening to music meditation music i figured anything with words was just too complicated and i needed to just let my mind relax fully um and then in it was must must have been june yes it was june of 2021 So about a year after I started meditating, I had found that there were some, some songs like with lyrics that would like, you know, create that sort of hypnotic state for me. So I listened to a couple of different songs on repeat, was able to do that. And then there was one song that really was attractive to me. So I I meditated to that song and then it just, it all just came out like in about, Fifty seconds. It just, it it was uh, uncontrollable sobbing. Like this, really, I wouldn't say like a sharp pain, but I like a this pain in my stomach. Like I felt like I had been gutted. Like it was really emotional and um, honestly, kind of it's kind of scary. I um, I remember afterwards, I called my my husband who was out running errands. And I, I was like, look, I don't know if I even believe in this, but you need to get some sage. We need to sage in the house. <laughs> I don't know what I did. <laughs> I think I unlocked something really awful. <laughs> so yeah, kind of half jokingly, half serious, half seriously. I was like, I, hey, you know, go get some sage. Um But it was, it was just instant, listening to the song and, and all of these emotions. And I, I I was, I couldn't quite say memories because most of my memories aren't visual. They're, they're more emotional, but like all of these emotions came forward and it suddenly hit me that I had, I had forgotten people that were very important that I was supposed to remember that might have been the most infuriating time in this whole process was the knowing, the knowing, but not knowing. Um, I kind of liken it to, you know, obviously I don't know what it's like to have Alzheimer's or dementia, but I kind of can imagine that in those early stages, when you know you have the disease and you know, you're starting to forget things, but you can't remember what it was, how frustrating that must be. And that's, that's what it felt like, and and it still feels that way, even with all of the memories that I have uncovered. It still feels that way sometimes.
0: You mentioned that um, that you've always had that fear kind of thing in your life. Did you find that knowing something was happening, but not sure what was happening, did you find that it gave you almost like phobias? Or
1: well, the fear of losing my memories. I, I couldn't tell you when it started, but I know it's been there for a long, long time. I don't know if it's been there, you know, since birth or since I, you know, started repressing the memories. Either one would make sense, really. Um, Because I think even as a young child who had spontaneous memories, I think there were still a lot of gaps in memory. Um But that Yeah, that fear of losing my memories has been there for a long time and it's never really made sense. I've shared that with a lot of people. The questions are always the same. It's always, well, did you know somebody who, you know, passed from dementia or did you know somebody with Alzheimer's? And I never did. I never knew anyone like that. I didn't even know those diseases existed until I think I was in my teens. Um, So in some ways, I mean, I I definitely don't feel relief. I don't feel relief from that fear, because now I know it's, now I know it's real. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's some, I guess there's some relief, but it's, it's, that fear is definitely still there.
0: You think it might be because you are afraid that there might be other things that are sort of, uh, that you don't remember about at all, that are going to come up and sort of kind of hit you all of a sudden, like, a because to what you went through, I I won't say right now because we haven't discussed it, but it's understandable for there to be a lot of feelings and emotions that you might not have actually had surface yet, perhaps. You know, that
1: doesn't really scare me all that much. There was only one sort of short period of time where it did scare me a little bit, and that would have been... Last summer, so I guess that was 2022. Um, I had this sort of sense that I had this sort of sense that the memories that were going to come next were going to be the the death memories, and I just I had been through a lot at that time personally. Um, I had had a really rough year prior to that, and I just didn't I didn't want to go there. Uh, you know I, and i and i actually stopped meditating because to me that was that was the conduit for these memories to come through so i just stopped i stopped doing it altogether um what i found though is that it doesn't matter once that door is open it's open the memories they come more spontaneously than they do through meditation at this point anyway um and uh and I had to, you know, I, I finally did have to confront it. I mean, I like I said, I kind of knew they were coming, but obviously you can't pinpoint what day and at what time. <laughs> um, it would be awfully nice if, you know, <laughs> if they would if they would let you know beforehand. But um I had booked a like two night stay. There's actually a spiritualist community not too far from where I live, um, that I had never been to. And I thought, well. This sounds like a nice, relaxing little weekend getaway. I was going to write um, because one of my goals is to write the story down and uh, maybe one day publish a book. Um, but yeah, the goal is to write, play a little guitar, have a nice, relaxing getaway. And um on the second day, I just got this awful, awful feeling like I just needed to get out of there. And I still don't know why. I don't know. I don't think there's anything about that place really. But um, I had this awful feeling that I had to get out of there and I had to like get out, get out really fast. Like I, I went to my little um my room that I had booked and I packed up everything really fast and tried to get out without anyone noticing because I had made some friends there and um, I didn't want to have to explain to them why I was trying to leave. And and I left and I, on the drive home again, the sobbing just, it just came on so, so strongly. Um, and as I was driving on the highway, I'm looking at all these streetlights and I've always had a little bit of a phobia of streetlights. not like incapacitating. Like I can, I can drive, I can drive past streetlights, but I started seeing all these streetlights and it almost seemed like they were like closing in on me. And it suddenly kind of dawned on me that. And I and I kind of knew that like, it was a somewhat violent death, but I didn't really know why, but it just sort of dawned on me that she died in a car accident. I realized that Margaret died in a car accident. And I don't think the streetlight itself killed her, but I think a streetlight was knocked down in the process. And I think she saw the streetlight kind of coming, coming in, coming down on her. And, um, it suddenly like explained so many of my weird little phobias. And again, not like incapacitating phobias, but like, um, Things that always kind of made me flinch a little bit, you know. I don't like I don't like things that tower over me that are like tall. Like around here, we have a lot of really tall water towers with like these big kind of bulbs on top. I don't like those; they make me uncomfortable. Um, Street lights make me uncomfortable. I don't like carnival rides, you know. Well, I mean, you no, know, a lot of people don't like carnival rides, but
0: <laughs> they kind of creating you a sort of almost like a, a visceral knee jerk. Sort of like, Ugh, I've got to get away from this kind of thing. Yeah, I've had a few yeah. of those myself, so I get it. I get what you're talking about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, and I've always been afraid of of electricity. Um, and even changing a light bulb, uh, it just always makes me flinch a little bit. I don't know why. Um, I remember when I was little, my back when we had the tube TVs, we don't have those anymore, but I remember a handful of times watching my mom take the tv apart and change the tube and it was i don't know just horrifying (laughs) like all the, the guts of the tv was just terrifying to me but um but i think that yeah watching that that big bulb that big light bulb kind of come down on me i just i forgot and i can't remember if i told you this the first time we spoke but um It was about maybe six years ago, my husband and I went to a um, kind of like an antique, like an architectural salvage place because we live in this old house and we like to buy parts that are um, time period appropriate for the house and, and fix it up and stuff. And we were in the lighting section and on the ground, there was this And it just looked so big, you know, they look small when they're up in the sky, but like there's this huge streetlight head and the bulb part and everything. And I just, I jumped like five feet backwards and screamed and my husband thought it was hilarious. (laughs) He doesn't think it's so funny now that he understands it, but, um, and I didn't understand it at the time either, but I had this, this like just horrified reaction to this thing. When I, once I realized what it was. And even since then, I've had a couple of, um, experiences where I've actually seen them down on the ground. Like, I don't know whether it's maintenance or I hope they, I really hope they didn't just fall on their own, but <laughs> you know, I've seen them down on the ground and, um, you know, really had like a true panic attack when I, when I saw those. So it made complete sense to me that that would have been, Maybe not the cause of death, but probably the last thing she saw, and it was probably scary.
0: I can imagine it would be if you think of one of those massive lights falling—pretty frightening yeah. stuff. So, so you um, to take you back to the experience where you had the pain in your stomach, and do you feel that that was actually you at the time? You didn't realize it, but did you feel it was you experiencing something like a birth experience? Or
1: I, I do wonder that um i don't know if it was the pain of a birth experience or just the the loss just the you know this this child is here one minute and gone the next um but i do wonder about that and i i had somebody recently ask me um because we we know as um you know social work social workers and mental health therapists we we know that trauma has an impact on the body. And she was asking me if um, I felt that there was previous life trauma that impacted my body in this life. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about it, but I did have a lot of mysterious stomach problems when I was, I don't know, probably between the ages of five and seven. And, you know, lots of tests done. And, there's never really any uh, diagnosis other than well, you might just have anxiety. You might just be a nervous stomach. Um, but I do wonder a little bit too, if that had something to do with a previous life, you know, that that birth experience or that.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, I had a similar thing happen. Mm-hmm. I had a regression done. And Tony brought up the point of, um, I remember the life being stabbed in the belly and she said, do you mm. feel that that was actually is related to your current cancer problems? And I I was a bit confused because I was kind of stuck between the two time periods. I was so immersed in the time that I uh kind of went, I'm not sure. But then as I thought about it, I went, that's really interesting that it actually my cancer wasn't actually the spot where I saw myself being stabbed in the belly. So who can tell? Mm-hmm. The mind and like consciousness are very powerful and they can do some quite uh trippy things really when you look at it all. Yeah. So that's true. So, after you had that experience of feeling the pain and and the sobbing and the you obviously realized something was going on, your husband was very supportive for a start you mentioned, which was great. What was your next step then to try and sort of work out what was going on? Were you aware at that point what had happened in the past, or were you
1: I was not aware um I just knew that there were people that I was supposed to remember um and that was in June of 21. And I continued, you know, my meditation, um, throughout the summer. It was November. It was November 1st of 2021 that I was driving my, my youngest daughter home from, uh, roller derby practice. She used to play roller derby and she must've been about eight at the time, eight or nine. She was just starting to get into that, um, Phase where she started to, you know, get a little attitude with mom, <laughs> and she, we got into some sort of argument, and it was obviously trivial because I don't even remember what it was about, and I was probably a little edgy anyway. I was probably a little on edge um, for whatever reason, but I just I felt the the emotions coming on, and uh, I dropped her off at home. I told my husband I was like, I'm going for a drive. I can't can't be here right now. And again, I just, I just started sobbing uncontrollably. Um, and somewhere along that drive, it's hard to explain. It's like, I, I've heard people refer to it as like a download. I guess that kind of goes with my computer analogy that I made earlier, but, um, it's almost like it's just this instant information that you get. And, It wasn't full-fledged information yet, but it was like, you need to do some research. And you need to Google this exact phrase. And it was women who were forced to give up children for adoption in the 1960s. And I pulled over, I Googled it, and this book showed up. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get that book tomorrow. It's going to be the first thing I read. And the crying, by the way, it didn't end that night. I... I went home. I cried myself to sleep. I thought I'll, I'll sleep it off. I'll get up and I'll be fine in the morning. I woke up in the morning and I just started crying all over again. And I cried until probably about four o'clock that afternoon. Um, when I finally worked myself up to go to the bookstore and get that book. Um, got the book, went through it real fast. Probably took me like two nights to, to read it. Um, it's a really fascinating book. It's, it's full of short, like stories of women who actually had this experience, but that also shares some history. But the women's stories, I was just so drawn to because as I was saying earlier, listening to your podcast and listening to some of the other people's stories, I'm reading this, all of these women to share these stories. And I'm like, I've said that. I've thought that. I've had those exact same words come out of my mouth. Um, And it just, it hit me right then and there. Like, well, this is clearly what happened in my past life. This is clearly what happens. And I, I mentioned this before. The man that I saw a month earlier, who kept staring at me, who's much older than me,
0: we actually haven't mm-hmm. sort of mentioned that bit in in this episode before yet. So mm-hmm. you were actually mm-hmm. at an event and uh, you noticed mm-hmm. a man was staring at you. And your husband noticed that yeah. too, didn't he?
1: Yeah, he did notice it. Um, yeah, we were at an event. There was an older man there that kept staring at me. <laughs> I hate to say that I'm a somewhat judgmental person, but I I think on a, on a normal night I would have been a little weirded out by it. Um, but for some reason, I wasn't. I, I also wasn't particularly drawn to him either. I just, it was just, it was just happening. It was just there. Um, but my husband really noticed it. Um, and even when we left, he was, he, I, he like counted how many times he told me. He was like, he was like seven times he stared at you. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> it wasn't counting, but I did notice it. And I noticed it was, it was unusual because, you know i mean we all do it we look at people and then when we realize that they realize we're looking at them we look away um it's just it's like human nature that's just what you do um and he he didn't he was like really staring at me um which again would have been a little creepy i think in any other case but it really just didn't bother me so you know back to november it kind of hit me at that moment that this man would have been the father of this child
0: yeah so did you actually uh just think that because of the way he reacted or did you actually feel inside yourself no that was him I recognized him
1: mm-hmm. I felt it and I honestly I, I I knew who he was I don't know him well but I, I knew who he was um and I'd seen him before and he was the first time I saw him which would have been months prior. There was a, a sense of familiarity. No, just just like a, I, I know you. You know.
0: Mm, mm. I had a friend have a similar thing happen. She actually met a man that was just, she was just getting work done from this guy, and he went to hand her his business card, and as she took it, their fingers just brushed each other, and she said instantly she just she just knew she recognized this man that they'd been together before and and it all just like you said i think memories can come to people in different ways but like you said she almost got like a download of um knowledge about it like she could mm-hmm. see it parts of it like yeah. sort of yeah and as you say just so that people understand how memory can work you can get the initial and then you do get like sort of little snippets of it coming up and just a, at the strangest time sometimes too
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah yeah so it's interesting isn't it mm-hmm. so you knew then that this man was the father of your child you haven't got any information about where your child is at the moment though or who his adoptive parents are is that right
1: at that point in time i didn't um I had kind of a vague sense of his name, which seemed strange to me. It was something that I almost didn't even trust because based on what I had read in the book, it was pretty unusual for an adoptive parent to honor the birth name or it seemed like Margaret wouldn't have ever known that. So I didn't fully trust it, but I did get a sense that his name started with like an M.A.R., in sort of some sort of homage, paying some sort of homage to her name starting with an M-A-R. Um, well, I didn't know this at the time. I just knew the M-A-R part. But then when I I was able to find him on social media, um, and, I mean, first of all, it was, I mean, I recognized his face. Even as an adult, I recognized his face. Um, he's also... Kind of the spitting image of his dad. And, um, he did have an MAR name and then his, um, middle name is the same as his birth father's. So, um, it's unusual. I don't know why. Um, and I don't know if, you know, birth parents made that request and adoptive parents honored it or if adoptive parents on their own sort of said, we're going to pay homage to birth parents. Um, either way again it's just it's unusual so
0: yeah it is interesting that his middle name um, is the same as his father so that does seem to indicate that they were trying to do some sort of homage or to understand that you know that the birth parents are a part of his life I mean you know it sounds Mm -hmm. like they were very uh, insightful people which is quite nice. You actually mentioned too that you felt that you were forced to give up your child. Do you you feel that you were forced by someone or do you feel that you had no choice because of the situation you were in?
1: I think both. Um, I think so I would have been 16, maybe 17, um, really too young to care for a child on my own or even with the help of a father. I think it would have been really challenging. I think there was a lot of parental pressure but I really, I really struggle with the emotions around the adoption. I don't remember a lot about it, but I, there's a lot of emotion around it. I honestly think part of the the emotion that I struggle with is, I mean, there's obviously the the guilt of of placing the child for adoption to begin with. And I think there's a a deeper guilt of almost like a relief, like. I mean, I hate to say that any birth parent would actually want to give their child up for adoption, but I think there was a sort of sense of relief and I think that there was a lot of guilt around that.
0: I wouldn't feel bad about feeling that feeling of relief because if you think about when people die that we love, often there's that feeling of great grief, but there's also a relief that their pain is over and that the difficulty of life for both of you has changed and has stopped and so i think that grief is complex and you know on some levels we can realize that we're grieving it and we're feeling trapped and we're feeling all these things but we can also feel a sense of relief that now things can go back to a normal life or you know we we're, we're through that situation now sort of yeah
1: definitely definitely um and i think for i think for margaret i think she was kind of ambitious for a woman at, in that day and age, I think she had, I think she had career aspirations. Um, so I think it was, it was a big relief for her as, it, but it was also tragic and heartbreaking at the same time.
0: Well, it was a difficult time. I mean, if you think about the sixties, it was the start of, the life changing and to us being more kind of um accepting of different lifestyles. But at the time in the sixties, it was still very much a stigma if a woman was pregnant out of out of marriage. And you know, there were none of the supports in place. You were on literally on your own. Whereas now we're more understanding.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I do kind of sense that maybe she and her boyfriend tried, you know, I think they tried to keep things going. I think even, I even kind of get a sense that they brought him the baby home for a few weeks. I, I, I don't get the sense she went away. Like, you know, the, a lot of women went to the like Magdalene laundry or, you know, um, they went to these unwed mother and child homes and, Um, I I don't get that sense. I mean, I've read a lot of those stories um, and nothing seems to really resonate in that way. But
0: in the last interview, we talked about contact and whether you felt that you should contact. And I actually shared some of my experiences of being adopted. But one of the things that um, mattered to me when I found my past was that my mother actually cared. She named me. I was very sick as a baby, and I could have died. I had sepsis, basically, golden stat. And I don't know about in America, but in Australia, there's a three-month cooling-off period, which always sounds kind of weird to me. It's like you're buying a house or a car, but there's a three-month yeah. clearing up period of cooling-off where either side can pull out of the deal. And I got very sick in that three-month period, so my adoptive parents weren't allowed to sign for my treatment so she had to sign for it and she did and she named me she named me Julie and there's a sort of a final court case on the day when everything gets finalized and my adoptive parents were getting ready to take me with them to the court and they got a message from their solicitor saying don't attend because she's going to be there and also as they were leaving the hospital with me um, the nurse said to them turn around and look up to that window and they said the birth mother is there watching you she's watching you leave so mm-hmm. i knew then from that when i found my information because we talked about not knowing and there's a feeling like a hole inside you that you you can't fill because you feel like there's a part of you that's out there that's lost and you don't know the circumstances of it and it's very difficult but there's also that feeling of, well, why? Why did you make these decisions? And I think in finding that, it can actually help you. Both sides can help to understand it. So,
1: yeah,
0: yeah I found that actually very helpful to realise that she did care and that it wasn't just um, something she did lightly.
1: Yeah, I um, I do struggle with, you know, the idea of, of making contact. Um, when I saw the... Um, was it called surviving death netflix series um there was the episode with um Ryan Hammond, I think so the the boy who remembered being a hollywood actor i believe um and i i just watched that and this this boy he was a teenager at the time he just seemed so uncomfortable meeting with the um the previous family, I think it was the wife and the daughter of this man. It just seemed like they they had so many questions that he couldn't answer, even though he had answered so many correctly already. Um, but it just seemed like they they were putting so much pressure on him. And I just felt so bad for him. And when I watched that, I was like, oh, I'm never, <laughs> I'm never doing that. I'm never gonna be put in that position. Um but yeah, listening to you share your story the last time we talked and, um, hearing you say, you know, if you had had that opportunity to meet your birth mother, even in a reincarnated form, you would want that. And it, it just really pulled on my heartstrings and it really kind of made me rethink it. Um, and I've seen some posts on Facebook, uh, forum. About it. Um, you know, kind of what are the ethical implications of reaching out to a previous family? Some people might want it, some people might not. Um you know, what kind of painful memories are you unearthing for those people? Um, but then somebody else commented, well, what are the eth- what are the ethical implications of not reaching out? And then I thought about you, and it was like, oh. <laughs> I don't know. I might. I might need to. I might have to. And I did recently. Um, probably not in the best way, but um, it was kind of a spur of the moment. I was in the right place at the right time, and um, the um, birth father was around. And um, I couldn't do it myself. I didn't have the guts to do it myself. <laughs> but I wrote. I wrote a, a quick little note. I didn't have really anything on me. To write on but a business card um and I just wrote a quick little note on the back kind of vague um but they have my contact information now and um, you know I guess it's just sort of the waiting game and I have to balance sort of that hope with that sense of okay you you've done what you need to do the ball's in their court let's let's move on so I have to kind of find a balance there um but I I do struggle a lot with, and and when I first said this out loud, um, it, it made sense to me. But I really struggle with: do I do I want to be found? Do I want to have that co- that contact, or do I not want to have that contact? And there's a part of me that really desperately does. Um, you know, I think partly to to make amends, sort of, or to reconcile. Um. I think partly to get more answers. Um, it's kind of frustrating to me that I know who they are, but I don't really know for sure who I was. I don't have a last name. Um, I'm not even fully confident that her name was Margaret, but I just know that MAR name. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I don't know if I want to be found or not. And I, I thought to myself, that must be exactly what a birth mother feels. You know, um, I think there is a part of you that that wants to know that somebody's out there looking for you. And I think the other way around, too, obviously, as an adoptee, you would feel probably feel that, too. But um, there's a part of the view that wants to be found as a birth mother. And there's a part of you that doesn't because you're you're afraid of what you're going to find or you're afraid of rejection.
0: I think you can also be afraid of how they're going to react to you because. From your side of it, you feel, oh, I gave this child up and they don't understand why. I think there can be a lot of fear of do they hate me? Are they angry at me? You know, from from my side of it, um, when you find out your information in Australia, you have to go through a counselling session and that can be a one-on-one or a group and I chose a group one and at that time you're told whether they have contacted you or not and they told me that mine hadn't but they also then make the point that for the birth mother, at the time of the adoption, um they are told never to contact basically. Or they were back then. It was basically a you're making this a petition, you're giving away your rights to that child. You're not to contact them, you're not to to, you know, to have any sort of attempt to try and search them down. And then of course it all changed as as the years went on a bit. But um but also for them too, they're also told the same as I was told that, you know, you don't know what's happened in that person's life from that point when you both went your separate ways that birth child might not have been told that it was adopted and um, on the other side of it as an adopted child I was told that my birth mother might not have told her family and they might she might have just decided to go on from this point and not let them know so Well, I I was a bit kind of devastated when I found she hadn't been looking for me, but at the same token, once they explained it, I kind of understood why. And I understand that feeling of that dual feeling of desperately wanting to and also kind of desperately not wanting to. You know, it's like you're opening this big door and once you open it, you can't shut it again.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But I've come a long way on the journey because when I first started this, there was, I, I mean, there was no way I would have given my contact information. I did <laughs> I did not, you know, I thought about doing this podcast and it was like, okay, but it's got to be really anonymous because I do not want to be traced. Well, it doesn't matter so much. I don't need the anonymity, but I still, you know, care about the anonymity of the other people involved.
0: I think the thing is, um, as you sort of go through it, it's about finding degrees of closure, and I think once you know, well, I've done the things that I feel I can do, and as I mentioned to you last time, I wouldn't say that every person who comes on here you should contact. I think it's a very personal journey, and it's something mm-hmm. that people have to be ready to do and want to do and even feel they need to. If you don't feel you need to, then there's no law saying you must do it, you know. You, I think yeah. each each case is very unique and You have to go with your gut and what your gut is telling you. Sometimes it's just enough to have the closure to be able to come on and talk about it and not have to make that step of contact. But last time we spoke, you were still sort of saying that you had feelings of lack of closure. Do you still have feelings of lack of closure about it?
1: Yeah, I do. I, I still struggle with it. I thought that just when I learned the story of what happened, that would have been enough closure. And then I thought, you know, finding... Finding my son would have been enough closure. Um, just seeing that he he seems to be happy and healthy and, you know, at least from social media standards, seems to have a great life. Um, I thought that would be enough, but it it's not. And um, I think it was, again, going back to your last podcast with Ben. I think Ben mentioned something like that. Like, And Ben had done a lot of research, too. There's just this. This longing that it just it just doesn't end. I, I don't know, I don't know when it ends. <laughs> and I don't know what closure looks like. I, you know, and I've had a couple people ask me, like, well, what do you want? Like what what are you hoping for in the end? And and I don't know. Um, I mean, yes, I think I do want contact, um, but I don't know what it looks like from that point on. Again, I'd like to know more about myself. I'd like the opportunity for I think about Jenny, uh, Coquel Is that how you pronounce her last name? Mm-hmm. Um, I think about her a lot and I read, I read her book and I've chatted with her a little bit. Um, it's tough when you, you know, I have family of my own, you know, I have, I have kids, um, and I haven't shared the details. They know that I I'm dealing with previous life stuff. They know that that much. Um, but I don't know how to tell them that I'm longing for this child that, you know, is 20 years older than me. And <laughs> um, it, it's there's I just I don't want to cause harm to my family, to the previous life family. I don't want to make things more complicated. Um, so I, I I struggle with that question of well, what do you want? And the answer is I don't know. I know that I want to not feel this empty ache anymore. Um, but I don't I don't know how to feel that.
0: It's a tricky one, isn't it? I think um Ben gained a degree of closure when he contacted his son. And uh he's also had contact with his daughter. They've met up and had a dinner together, and I think that did help him, but Ben still has a lot of regret about the fact that his relationship with his children back then was sort of ceased in a sense i think he feels a great deal of sorrow about that and even having met them and having a chance to talk to them about it that it's still there because i think that's the trouble with being human we do have regrets about things and sometimes there is no easy one size fix all answer i think it's like in any relationship you just have to if you decide to reach out um it's read the room. You know, if they if they are keen, then great. But if they're not keen, then you just say no worries and step back and just accept that that's what it's going to be, which is kind of what I had to go through with my birth mother as well. When I first contacted her, <laughs> this was the start of my worst probably two, three years of my life. I contacted my um, birth mother and she initially said, which I actually contacted her through a cousin, a cousin contacted her and said, a child a child has popped up and said that she is adopted and, uh, and from looking on the genealogy, it either comes back to you or one of your brothers, and she went, oh, I don't know anything about that, no, not at all. Well, I knew she was my birth mother because I knew from the paperwork. Um, so she kind of did this, oh, I'll ask around, but I'm not sure what that's about. Um, and then the next week she died because I didn't realise she had pancreatic cancer. Um, and that devastated me because I was like, damn, I wish I'd done something about it earlier and I wish I'd contacted her. But then as you sort of go along, you kind of realise that life is just an imperfect thing and that sometimes it doesn't work out the way you want it to. And maybe that maybe that was meant to happen this time around. Because the funny thing happened. Um, I never used to believe in paranormal or supernatural stuff and mm-hmm. doing this podcast I've changed my mind on that there are things that do happen around it that I think the two sides are a lot more connected than we realize and mm-hmm. when I got cancer I was waiting for my surgery and I think I might have mentioned this before one morning I woke up at, it was about three in the morning I just woke up from sleep couldn't get back to sleep and I was thinking god in two days I'm going in for cancer surgery this is just completely confronting and mind-blowing and right at that moment I felt like this wind across my face. And my room is sort of in the middle of the house. There's no, you don't get drafts in there. It's a very still sort of room. Um, Mm. But also I felt this wind across my face. And then it was like someone reached over the bed and kissed me. And I've often wondered if it wasn't my actual birth mother, because I really do believe that, and this might be how Margaret knew a little bit about what happened with her son, when you get to the other side, You have a lot more access. You're still very much attached to what's happening on this side. And I think that Mm. she would have been very aware of what was going on with him because she had such strong feelings about it. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's often we can think, well, how could she know that? How could she know? You know, but I think they pick up a lot more on that side. They still follow what is going on. And
1: Yeah, I believe that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and, I mean, you can see that in quite a few of the kids who say things like, I chose my parents. And so there's a lot more interaction and a lot more freedom of will, I suppose you could say, on the other side. So we can't, we, we do remain connected to this side a lot more. It's not just yeah. a cut off. Death isn't a cut off. And that's what I tell people. Yeah. I think people are afraid of dying, but there's nothing to fear in it. It's just a stepping over.
1: I will say that I... I was very afraid of death until this, you know, this whole process over the last couple of years, even though I, I think I've always kind of subconsciously known that I've had these past life memories. I hadn't really considered reincarnation. And I was always very afraid of death. And I, I definitely look at it much differently now, uh, although not to be a downer, but it, it is a little, it's, it's. It's not easy um, having all of these emotions and especially when the people from the previous life are still around um, as they are in this case. I mean, I know some people remember previous lives from 200 years ago and obviously their family's not around anymore. Somebody on the Facebook forum mentioned this and it, it really resonated with me. It's a lot like um, watching your previous family go throughout life from a soundproof room with like a two-way mirror. Like you can see them and hear them, but they can't see you and hear you. Um, And I also liken that to, um, I was very fond of the movie The Wizard of Oz when I was a kid. And the scene that always got me, I mean, even when I was a tiny, tiny kid, I would sob and cry at the scene where Dorothy is trapped in the witch's castle and she's in that tower room by herself and she can see Auntie Em in the, in the crystal ball and Auntie Em's looking for her and calling for her and she's calling back, but she can't, Auntie Em can't hear her. And it's just, it's, there's this longing for people and places and a time that you just can't Get back to and and yeah it's I remember I loved that movie but it that whole concept of like trying to get back home really was it, it made me very emotional as even as a little kid
0: that's what I mean about the whole thing it's it's sort of like a, a lot more complex than we realize and there's a lot more going on than we realize and I think sometimes you know people sometimes say oh i'm cursed or i've done something wrong or i caused this and i'm this is why i don't believe in the concept and don't like the concept of karma i don't think that's what's going on at all i think we might come down here to learn we might come down here to meet people we might come down here to experience things but i don't think there's any kind of feeling of you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong and ben ben c um actually made the point that He remembered being an SS officer, and this one has stuck with me because you can't get a life that is more dark or disturbing than an SS officer, and he remembered doing awful things, but he said when he died, he stayed on the battlefield for a long time, and he just kept reliving what he'd done to people over and over. He said, I must have gone to each scene a million times, and he said, and eventually this being came down and said, well, you were in a play. You were in a play down there. And what do you feel about that now? There was no sense of judgment, no sense of of uh, guilt or retribution. It was just this very gentle. Well, this is what you experienced. How do you feel about it? And I think that's very much what happens on the other side. I don't think there's any judgment about what choices we make. And I think mm-hmm. I don't think there's karma involved in it at all. I don't think you come back to an awful life next time because Ben's life this time is very gentle very beautiful, very, you know, energetic. He's sort of like he's very, he's entrepreneurial and, you know, he's living mm-hmm. a lovely life this time. So mm-hmm. it gives me hope, it makes me realise that there is nothing that can happen in a life that is just completely irrevocable. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure if anyone who is listening to that feels that's fair, but I think for all of us, once we get on the other side, we sort of understand things a bit more fully than perhaps we do yeah. on this side. So
1: Yeah. Um,
0: I hope no. so anyway.
1: <laughs> I hope so too, yeah.
0: That's what most people do describe, and I think maybe that's why you this time around have your memories is because you hadn't had the chance to fully reconcile them in the past.
1: Yeah.
0: You know. And yeah, it's
1: that feeling of unfinished business, yeah.
0: It's interesting that that's a common theme in people who have reincarnation memories. There's usually something about it that either a sense of, it's not all, I, I keep saying this and I really shouldn't, it's not all sad or bad. It's not that they only remember trauma or they only remember the loss. It's it's the memories of things unfinished. I think it's that feeling of I wish I'd had more time to do that or because, you know, Luke, Christian Haupt remembers being Luke Gehrig who died of ALS. And he loved baseball and he felt like he never finished that. And he also, um, he and his mother both feel that they were mother and son in that life and mother and son in this life. And it's because they wanted to experience being mother and son without it being cut short. So, you mm-hmm. know, I think I think it can be a positive, beautiful thing as well. It's not always about sadness and trauma and phobia and, you know, it's, yeah. about, it's about healing really when you look at it.
1: So Yeah, I, I I can see that. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So, well, I hope you actually do get the feeling of closure, and the, I hope I hope, being that you've been brave enough to contact him, I hope he does come forward. And yeah, we'll uh, see. <laughs> yeah. Whatever happens, if he does or he doesn't, you know, you've done everything you can do.
1: I mean, I did. I I felt an immediate sense of of relief. Um I like I was proud of myself after that. I, I felt I felt good about it afterwards. Um but yeah, there's still just that lingering hope, oh, yeah. I guess. <laughs> well, yeah. you never
0: know. Maybe he's a listener and he might might give him the courage to
1: maybe. <laughs> you don't know.
0: You don't know. <laughs> Regardless of whatever happens, you've you've done this remarkable journey and it's it is something that you should be very proud of because you faced it and it's difficult it's difficult so what does life feel like for you now do you feel like you're sort of able to put some of the emotions to rest with it or do you still feel that you have more that you want to do or
1: I still feel the emotions um I I do struggle um and I don't know what else I can do um, other than try to process the grief as it is now the best I can. And I, I think part of it is just leaning into the emotion. Um, you know, I think we're we're really quick to medicate um, when we feel extreme sadness like this. Um I I mean, I do it's not like I'm anti-medication when we're, you know, going through depression or or extreme grief. Um, but I do think that. We need to learn how to, to lean into the grief a little bit more. I think, um, for me, the, the times when I get the most depressed are the times when I doubt myself. And it's the times when I say all of this is absolute nonsense. And I just need to buck up and be an adult and, you know, get over it. Um, I've really been trying to learn to lean into the grief, give space for it. Um, even if it's just 20 minutes a day, as long as I'm not bogged down in a, in a way that it's, um, impacting my day to day activities, I, I lean into it because there's nowhere else for that to go. And if I don't find space for it, I, I think I'm going to end up in trouble. So.
0: I think that's a very healthy way to look at it I think that you know we can't do much about controlling life around us to that extent we can only do the bits that we can deal with we can't change someone else's mindset or make them force them to contact us or so all you can do is deal with the things that you can do and I think that's a very healthy way to look at it is to look at it and say I need to feel this grief I need to grieve it but as you say not sink into it you don't You don't want it to become the defining thing and the overwhelming thing in your life because, you know, your life is valuable. This life is valuable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you have a purpose in this life because you have children and a husband who love you. And, you know, I think that's the thing that we need to be able to keep an eye on is to be able to balance that feelings of feeling the grief so that you can eventually hopefully put that bag down.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, I... I wasn't allowed to grieve as a child. I think if I had been given the opportunity to talk about these experiences as a child and and feel the grief, then I think I think my life would have taken a very different, a a very different path. Um, But it is what it is. Um, I also question too how much could I really process at that at that young age? Um, I think it takes in in some ways it almost takes being a mother to, to fully grasp it. Um, and I, and honestly, um, so I had mentioned that I, I'm in Jim Matlock's class right now and we're on the unit where we're studying, um, past life memories in adults. And, um, one of the things I just read today is that it for adults, a lot of you, there's, there's usually like some sort of cue, some, something, something in your life triggers those memories coming up. If they're not, um, uh, brought about different ways, meditate. Well, I mean, it could be meditation, whatever. There's some sort of cue. You need some sort of cue, um, to bring those memories about as an adult. And, um, for me, I really think, so in 21, I'd I mentioned I had had like the worst year. Um, so I have, um, I have stepchildren. I have one child of my own. Um, and then I have uh, stepchildren. And I had a, a stepdaughter that at the age of 13 um, started really struggling mentally, which caused some physical problems. And she was, she was really in a bad place. I mean, she ended up in the hospital a number of times. And, um, I was really struggling with the fact that I didn't have any parental rights over her. Um, my husband was doing the best as he, you know, the best he could, but he was kind of in the thick of it. He was like in the thick of the illness and he wasn't thinking straight. And I just wanted, I knew she needed to go to the hospital and he just wasn't, he wasn't quite there yet. And I just, I wanted so desperately to be able to take over, but I knew that I didn't have, I didn't have the parental rights over her healthcare. I couldn't make those decisions. And I really think that was sort of my cue that sort of triggered all of these emotions and Margaret coming forward. Um. And I, thought, yeah, I I just read that today, honestly. So it was just kind of on my mind.
0: An interesting insight, actually, too, that um, I wouldn't have considered. But you're right. Uh, it's interesting that you've now become a stepmom in a sense to girls. So you're kind of getting the full circle of everything. You're getting too. It's like you've been trying to experience what it's like to have a child, give it up, and then have other children that are your stepchildren but that you love like your children uh, yeah, absolutely so. yeah you feel yeah. really on a path there in a way you can see that the experiences that you're you're experiencing are linked in a lot of ways
1: absolutely and like you say I don't know that it's necessarily attributed to karma but I do think that there is Or I feel like there's got to be some reason it's there's got to be a reason like I'm I'm I need to have all the perspectives. Um, you know, even myself, I, you know, I'm, I'm not adopted, but I I was raised by a single mother. So there was a lack of a parent um, in in my life growing up. Um, you know, obviously in Margaret's life, she had the experience of giving up a child. Um, now as an adult, I have the experience of being a parent, but not having those parental rights, so yeah, it's kind of like getting this full spectrum, this full picture of of all the different ways to be a parent and to have that parent child relationship. And yeah, like I said, I don't know, but it's necessarily attributed to karma. But there's there's a theme there.
0: I uh, I had a regression, and I'm, I you and I are very similar in a lot of respects because I found that a lot of my lives actually. There's there's ripples and links in each life, which is quite fascinating that I've always had this thing where um, I knew I had a dark past life and I've always been terrified that I was someone really horrendous, like a pedophile or something awful because I had this feeling of foreboding to the point where I don't have children myself. Most of my past lives I don't remember having children, Um, so it's like there's this theme from that and I'm like something awful happened with children back then and I had the feeling because of my feelings of this foreboding that I'd done something to children Um, in the end I went if I'm going to do this I have to face this I have to go back to that life and look at who I was I ended up actually going back to that life and what it actually was was um, I was a woman in Mesopotamia who was married to a man and he actually was Uh, physically violent to me and my children and murdered them and it was because I had created a situation it wasn't really my fault I mean I was in a a marriage that I didn't have a choice being in but I created the situation that caused the events that made him kill me and them and because of that I had this terrible guilt of I didn't protect my children I didn't and it's fascinating because I, I kind of as you said you get like a download you kind of I knew the minute I was looking at I'm like this is yes I know this I actually found that out through a guided meditation I didn't find that mm. one regression but and then another life I was sitting waiting at the doctor's surgery to see my physician and um, I had another life because I was tired and I, I never sleep well before those appointments and um, mm. I was tired I was sitting on there their couch was quite comfortable and I started almost doing the the nod you know and this Mm -hmm. life just popped into my head that was actually linked to that life and I'm like what is going on (laughs) and I've sort of realized that I've I've got had these things that happened in this past life from Mesopotamia like in 1020 BC that actually is affecting my life now in this life and it's interesting I think I'm at the point now where I'm finally ready to deal with it to actually look at it full on because I've always avoided children, avoided them like the plague. I've not wanted them. I haven't had them. And then I um, now in the last couple of years, two of our friends have got kids and one of them's a little girl and I see her a lot. She lives around the corner. We see a lot of each other. And um, it's like kids are now getting pushed at me like, okay, it's time to deal with this. It's time to deal with it. And I just adore this little girl. She's just the most beautiful little girl. And she gives me great joy to be around her. And the same with our other friends, their little kids. And I've realized now that, and the sense of relief when I realized I don't have to be afraid. I'm not some horrible monster that's going to turn into some abuser. or Because I really felt there was such a foreboding about going to that life. I felt I must have been horrendous to have done something to children to have caused all this pain. But it was just my own feelings of guilt and responsibility that my actions kind of led to that and it's it's something that I've just repressed and all through my lives it's been a thing it's quite bizarre yeah where I've never had kids and I never wanted kids I never wanted kids in this life was not maternal at all and yet if you know me my friends are like I don't understand that because you're a very loving person yeah and it's interesting that it all comes from that first life that I recall in Mesopotamia yeah i'm on that path of learning about love and control that's what mine is that i'm have have to learn about having love not having love giving love you know what happens yeah. when love is denied what happens when so yeah it's quite fascinating we've we're on yeah. sort of paths of learning i think different ones but paths of learning
1: definitely yeah definitely
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's something I, you know, I continue to explore every day. It definitely doesn't feel like the end. I feel like there's still so much to explore and so much to analyze. And
0: well, and I think the thing is too, it, um, it does affect our lives now because your life, you've, as you've sort of mentioned a few times, you've gone on to become interested in helping other people because of what you've been through. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I, I have. And it's, it's honestly, it, it's, it wasn't something that was really on my radar before. I've always been, um, kind of doing social work, but on a more macro level, working with communities, um, you know, policy advocacy kind of work. Um, um, I, it, I think I mentioned too that like, when I look through some of my other past lives, which are much smaller little snippets of memories, but you know, oppression is a, a common theme. So it, it makes sense that I'm working in that space. But just in the last few years, um, really since COVID, um, I felt like I really needed to be more in that, that mental health space. I need to be working with people individually, um, in in that space. And, and then it, with the the past life stuff that just came about, it, it suddenly, it makes so much more sense. It's like, you know, there's an entire group of people out there that probably are terrified to even tell their therapist (laughs) to begin with. I know I was one of the, I was terrified to tell my therapist the first time, um, that I had these past life memories. I thought, I was like, oh boy, you know, they're going (laughs) to, she's going to be making some phone calls after, <laughs> after she talks to me, but um she was very receptive. But, um but yeah, there's this whole group of people that, that are afraid to open up and need space to open up um and need space to work through whatever it is that they need to work through from those previous lives. It's like you said, it's not always grief, but you know, it can have a huge impact on your, your current life and you know, I've been through years of counseling and and honestly felt quite healed Um, by the time 2020 rolled around. I was in a pretty good place and I felt quite quite healed from all of the traumas from my current life. Um, And then, you know, whatever you want to call it, the universe or the spirit world or the other side just decided, well, it's time for you to dig into your past life. <laughs>
0: I mean it's interesting (laughs) how you get pushed to things as I said I have avoided kids like the plague and now they're Mm -hmm. just getting like pushed on yeah it's like no you've got to deal with this and I honestly feel that um, the whole adoption thing for me this life was also part of learning about that experience of uh, what it's like to be a child who's vulnerable because my adoptive parents and I explained this last time and I won't go into great detail but they they had a son of their own and they tried to have other babies and they couldn't they kept on having miscarriages or births and they had tried six times and two of their children came full term and died and my mother said I I wish I'd never had those kids I wish we'd never done it and my adoptive father went well we'll do something about it and basically arranged for my adoption to happen and um the problem with that was I don't think Mum had had any time to grieve her own children, and she'd had she'd never been allowed the time to just accept that this is what happened that you had these babies and that they were little people that you loved and put hopes into and you know that you had planned futures for, and then all of a sudden they just didn't happen and My mm-hmm. father started the adoption thing, and then when I became their child, I then became a symbol to her of her own failure I think I was like a slap in the face every time she looked at me of and so she never loved me and I knew that as a child and I knew that you know that there was a difference between me and my brother who was their natural child but I could never work it out I just knew that I was lesser because she always told me and let me know that I was lesser and I've got to say that sounds terrible to have to go through and like she was a bad person but she wasn't she was just someone who hadn't been allowed to grieve she was someone who had no choice in the whole thing. And like everybody in it had no choice. I had no choice. My birth mother had no choice. And she had no choice. You know, so all of the women involved in this, this story had no choice. Yeah. You know, and I think uh, that was something that I had to experience from all sides of it. And it's given me a lot of compassion and empathy. I really honestly feel very grateful for the life I've had, because I've learned so much, particularly about compassion and empathy and love and how important it is to give love out not to hold love back and you know the damage we do just by not giving love so
1: yeah yeah that and that's huge that's huge I mean you you could have very easily turned into somebody who held a grudge and you know you could have held on to a lot of anger and it sounds like you've done a great job of working through that yourself and
0: Well, life sort of puts you in funny patterns. But As we've gone along, they got very old. My father got very sick. He had kidney problems and dialysis and what have you. And the roles reversed and I became the person with the power and they became the ones vulnerable to me. And I decided that I was going to try and be supportive and loving and not give back what they'd given to me. And my husband sort of was kind of like... "Mm -hmm why are you being so nice to them because they were so awful to you <laughs> and I'm like yeah but if I do that back then I become that which I hate i become someone who be- becomes destructive and I never want to be someone who's destructive you know and I did love them and, and they did love me in their own way they did love me but they just I look back and I've got lovely memories as well as this awful that's not all awful but um it's just unfortunately tainted by this reaction of mum's. But mum's reaction came about because she wasn't dealing with her own grief and she wasn't the sort of person who would self-analyse like that. So she just Mm -hmm. shut it down, repressed it, and then mum's always thing was, you know, you hit first because then you get the first hit in, you know. So she was just always punching out because that was how she learned to cope. So yeah. You know, and it took me a long time to work that out. It took me a lifetime to really work through it all and understand it all. But it was Mm -hmm. a valuable journey and it's been a very valuable life, this one. So yeah, um, I'm actually very grateful for it.
1: That is great. Yeah.
0: Um, I'm grateful for being punched from pillar to post, but it's actually, I (laughs) I think that's actually what we're here to learn is to try and, become our best versions of ourselves and unfortunately a lot of people don't get that and I think that's the thing you've always got to be able to look at yourself and say what am I doing wrong does this feel like an arrow going to a target that's how I visualize it if I ask myself is this the right move and it feels like an arrow going to the center of the target I know that it's right but if I feel it's veering off or I'm I know that I'm not being true to myself or I know that something's not right and I have to relook at it so that's yeah. what I do well, I'm glad that your journey has led you into social work and being a supporter for the people who don't have enough support themselves. And I can't yeah. wait to see where it takes you.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm nervous but excited. It's a it's going to be a big career change for me, but I'm uh, hoping to get something something up and running.
0: People need it. People need it. Exactly. I think you are going to be a force for good because. I think that's why you were led down this path. I think there's more people getting led down this path of understanding reincarnation exists and understanding that there's a special needs and supports we need to put in place so uh, I think the universe has done its right work with you and led you in that path so let us know how you get on and what you end up doing and if you ever set up anything, just let me know and uh yeah, I'll, I'll mention it on the podcast. I won't.
1: Yes, they will, because I'm going to have to get clientele somehow. I don't know.
0: Well, I think once people realise that you're out there, they will come to you because yeah. yeah, when you have these feelings and you're not getting the support from mainstream society, you, you start to look out for people. You get pointed in that direction because you, they stand out. So
1: Yeah. And like I said, I mean, your podcast led to Jim Matlock's group, which led to the class. I mean, I'm all these doors are kind of opening for me now and giving me support where I didn't have support before and giving me the confidence to even share among some of my closer friends and and family, Um, because I'm telling you a, a year ago, I was very closed off Um And very felt very isolated, very depressed. I appreciate the podcast very much.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I love hearing that because I didn't ever think that it would ever be what it is. But it's something that I'm very proud of because I do think it is helping people. So that's the whole aim of it all. So let us know what you end up doing and when you get a business up and going. And I'll let people know about it so they can contact you for support and counselling if they need it. We'll go from there. Sounds good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Annie. It's been a delight, both times. It's been an absolute delight, and I'm so glad to have met you and heard your story because I think it's a difficult one but also a beautiful one. So, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. I'm always so empowered by people who are struggling with their memories coming on to talk to us because I know how very difficult it can be for them. As you heard, Annie is still dealing with the memories and I hope she does get some contact from the person she reached out to so she can find peace about the situation. I'm also delighted to hear that the experience has led her to a new passion to help others with memories like herself. Annie is in the later stages of her training now and hopefully will be able to help others with counselling and support about their memories in the near future. I'll keep you posted on her progress and let you know if she sets up practice in case you want to contact her. I'm also grateful to Annie for raising the subject of adoption. Like reincarnation, there are many preconceived ideas out there about what adoption is, and it is often not the fairy tale happy ending that everyone hopes it will be, sometimes from both sides of the relationship, as you heard in my account. As with many things related to the human condition, things are never black and white. I hope our talk about it and some of the problems that we've both faced in very different ways have helped some people feel less alone and given them a feeling of support. Things always feel a little bit better if you don't feel like you're the only one struggling. The wonderful thing about the human situation is that no matter what you're experiencing, somewhere else in the world someone else can understand and empathise with your problems, because they may be going through something similar. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Life Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation, or if you can relate your own past life experiences, or actually even with adoption, I'd love to hear about it and talk to you, and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr@gmail.com. at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. If you'd like to support me, I'd be honoured if you'd become a Patreon supporter. You can find me on Patreon under Reincarnation PLR. I do do extra content now, and your support keeps helping me pumping out content faster and lets me keep on doing what I hope you love hearing. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique And your life has a purpose.